Cohen, proud member of, uh, of this gang, the Chabura. And uh, it's our great honor and privilege to have with us Rabbi uh, Dr. Berman and obviously our Rosh Beit Midrash, Rabbi Dweck. Just uh, to explain who we are, a couple of words of housekeeping. Um, this is the uh, this is the Chabura for those here for the first time. Uh, we are a virtual and please God very soon physical Bet Midrash. And for those who uh, want to find out more, we have a website and all sorts of social media uh, content and, and other online uh, abilities to access us. And you can go to thechabura.com for more of that. Now, just to intro what we're going to be looking at today, Rabbi Dr. Berman is the author of the wonderful book that everyone should have on their shelves, Anima Amin. Um, Anima Amin comes in two parts. And today we're going to be focusing on the second part, but I will mention a couple of words about the first part because I just thought it was so on point with what we look to do here and the ideas and open-mindedness and rigor that we look to embrace. And there were a couple of lines that I thought really stood out that should be read. So I'm going to quote from the book um, and then we'll talk about what we're going to talk about today. So in the first chapter... This is a phenomenal passage, and I, I think it needs to be heard. Even as the Rambam and Ralbag engage ancient Near Eastern texts to help us understand the Torah, for many there is a certain hesitation to do so that stems from the realm of religious psychology. When you sit and learn, there is a certain aura of Kedusha that you feel as you open a textured, cranberry-colored safer from left to right. Somehow Pritchard's ancient Near Eastern texts just don't do it. There is almost a feeling that such materials, even if not forbidden, are surely from the world of Chulin. In our world, there is an atmosphere of holiness, Kedusha. However, figures like the Rambam, Ralbag, Ababanel freely and seamlessly integrated non-Torah materials into their Torah study. Their model of how to integrate these materials into a proper understanding of Torah should offer us the religious security blanket to do the same. Thought that was absolutely. That's, a, that's an ad for the Chabura. That's amazing. We have to. We have to ask Rabbi Berman's permission to. Uh, that will be on the WhatsApp group absolutely. as the as the tagline. Um, I also I just wanted to say the the whole first section is about dealing with many elements and aspects of Torah and using the tool of that of of, un, of a deep understanding of its ancient context to really unlock some of the mysteries. And it's a phenomenal tool and an essential reading. I will specifically mention the sixth chapter as we spent a lot of time talking about halacha and the development of halacha from its earliest times, the giving of the Torah. And I think that for those who are interested in that discussion, this Chabur has discussed Chacham Fa'or in that context as well. The sixth chapter is absolutely essential and invaluable reading. The second section of the book is where we come to, and it's an interesting thing that the book kind of moves into seamlessly suddenly discussing the Rambam, uh, the Rambam's 13 principles, and it's not immediately clear why that move has been made. But for those, I think, paying attention, there's a, there is an importance there to question, despite the fact that academia and thorough rigorous study shows the Torah stands up in the, in the most beautiful way to all sorts of investigations. 
what are the boundaries of those investigations and what are the limits to what we can talk about and discuss and in that context we come up against the Rambam's eighth principle which is that the Torah is min hashamayim and he formulates that in a very specific way the question is what is the development of that formulation from its original texts in the, the sources in the Gemara and in the Mishnah and how accepted halachically and historically what was the Rambam's formulation and where does it leave us today in wrestling with these kinds of questions and on that note we're going to hand over to Mori Varebi, very capable hands of Rabbi Dweck who will take it from here. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack. And uh, thank you, Rabbi Berman, for taking your time to be able to be with us tonight and to, to discuss these issues. I'm going to ask you, where do you want to begin? Where do you want to, how, where do you want to dive in from on the, on the issue? Well, well, well first, I, I, I want to make some uh, uh, opening comments oui. before we get to the issue. Yes, um, um, I, I can't say how, how, how thrilled and honored I am to be here. Um, uh, when I got the initial <clears throat> email from Avi, and it was clear to me that this is a, a meeting here this evening and, and in the, the periodic uh, uh, gatherings that you have in Chabura, that what we have here are a group of people who are very uh, stimulated intellectually and looking for uh, religious intellectual uh, uh, stimulation for their growth. I think that many of us who uh, uh, search for that find that in our respective communities, our brick and mortar communities, you know, where we actually live, not on Zoom, uh, this is sometimes hard to find. Uh, we might have a few friends here or there, but our general community might not have the same proclivity. Uh, and so therefore uh, the blessing of Zoom to be able to come together as a community online is something that I just to so totally support that even uh, to stay up at a late hour uh, is something that I am absolutely thrilled to do, to be able to contribute my little part. Uh, secondly, I, I am a firm believer that uh, the more that our Torah is somehow anchored in our own personal experience, or I would say our family experience, or something that's, that's uniquely ours, not just part of Klai Yisrael, then the stronger it is. And therefore, when I see that there are a group of people who come from a Sephardic heritage and who are looking for Sephardic insights uh, to various questions of hashkafa and of halacha, uh, I know that this is ultimately going to provide enormous roots uh, for those that are here. I guess I'm a little bit surprised and maybe disappointed to see so many of the names that, uh, at least to me, uh, appear to be uh, uh, Ashkenazic names. Uh, I guess we're all uh, honorary Sephardim here tonight. Um, but that's, that's also something that is very uh, dear and important to me, and, and therefore anything that I can share about what is a fascinating Sephardic heritage on this question uh, uh, is, is for me a huge, a huge schut. Um, and finally, I think that uh, as, as I've discovered through researching these topics and others, um, you know, those of us that live in an, Ashken an Ashkenazic milieu have a lot to learn from uh, uh, unheard Sephardic voices, not just in Halakha, but in Hashkafa as well. And so this is a, a type of uh, dialogue that's uh, near and dear to my heart. And finally, the opportunity to uh, uh, dialogue and have conversation with Rabbi Dweck, whose name precedes him, uh, is also 
uh, uh, an honor for me. And so for all those reasons, uh, I'm quite, quite happy to be up and awake uh, at this hour and to uh, begin tonight. Um, maybe I'd like to, let's see, I'd like to just throw out some of the highlights of this uh, second half of the book. And maybe um, um, Rabbi Dweck, you can kind of jump in wherever you want. Um, yeah, so, you know, I think I'll a lot of- I'll jump in and say, Rob, that the honor is all ours. Okay. Really it all is. Right. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're raised like I was, then then the 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 notion of Tramina Shamayim, and particularly the Rambam's formulation, as it's popularly understood, uh, um, as written in the introduction to Perak Chelek, uh, mosaic authorship, every single word, every single letter, uh, is well known. And if you were raised the way I was, then it is an absolute hard uh, uh, red line. And any anyone who moves in a, a jot or tittle away from that is is out. Uh, and, and there are certainly many voices that, that maintain that and maintain that to this day. Uh, but I do believe that there's a lot more that's going on in our tradition. Uh, and, and it's important for us to be aware of those, of those voices and, and, and what, they might, what, what some of their implications might be for today. Um, I always found it very fascinating. We have, really have to start from the beginning. You know, if we speak that this is, well, what is one of the Ikareya Muna, just the whole notion of, of Ikareya Muna has a fascinating history itself. We're probably all most familiar with uh, the Rambam's 13 Ikareya Muna. Uh, but prior to that, where does the whole notion of Ikareya Muna even begin? This is quite unclear. Um, um, Yes, you can find sources for all the things that the Rambam says in the Talmud, maybe even in the Tanakh itself, but certainly the Tanakh nor the Talmud, neither of those texts ever makes the effort to say, okay, folks, here's the list. This is what, this is what a good Jew must, must believe. Uh, and that in itself is, uh, is quite surprising. Uh, one would think that this should be quite basic, you know, the, you know just like, uh, the, just, what is it that we have to believe? Why is it that our, our most basic sources, the Tanakh and the Talmud, uh, make never seem to to engage this question, uh, and and it's part of a larger issue, and that is that no ancient religion ever made such a list. That itself is also a big question. Why that is, and the answer is really very simple. Um, um, people lived reality; they lived the ideas that that, that, that were cherished to them. Um, as I thought to myself, and I was very pleased when I once raised this with Rabbi Sachs that he immediately that he immediately said the same thing. He said, you know, I, I look on the on the on the, the screens around, those of you that are married, I can see some of you are probably married for a good number of years, maybe even a good number of decades by now. Were someone to say to you, uh, what are the 10 most important principles of married life? I think you'd probably fiddle and thought, well, I understand why, why, why are you having a difficulty coming up with that list? I mean, if you've been married for a good number of years or a good number of decades, you should be able to just belt it out. And the answer is, is that, you know, it's a relationship and it's not given over to simple formulations. And even if you take something like communication, well, I think we'd all agree communication is a very good and important thing in a marriage. Uh, but to just say, you know, the first, the first commandment of marriage, thou shall communicate. What the, it almost says nothing. Does that mean that I should share with my spouse everything that I'm thinking? Oh, I better not do that. Should I share with my spouse the things that I'm thinking right away at all times? Probably also not a good idea. 
The point being that communication means nothing until we're speaking about a very concrete, specific situation, knowing the people that are involved, knowing the situation that surrounds it. And so it's all very situational. And so it is really with our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. One can speak about fidelity and one can speak about, you know, Briyat HaOlam, but exactly what this means in terms of the relationship is, is constantly changing and needs to be, certain things need to be emphasized at different points. And so no religion, no religion in the ancient world where they were all relating to their deities, ever came up with such a list. Uh, it was really only Christianity that started it. And the reason that Christianity was the first religion that did this was that uh, Christianity was the first religion that sought to proselytize, that sought to bring people in. And as you may have noticed, bringing people into Yiddishkeit, uh, into the world of Torah mitzvot, is not so easy. You know, we all know people who are Gerim, but there's never been a mass movement of Gerim, and there's never really even been a mass movement of, of Teshuvah either. Uh, to be part of this system, most likely you have to have been born into it. And there's some, you know, some really special people who make it in on their own. But Christianity was looking to bring in lots and lots of people, and so you can't give them 613 mitzvot. You can give them here, just, you know, follow these basic things, follow these basic ideas, and you're saved. So it really all started there. With Islam, Islam also got this thing. They, they like the idea of a list of things, of, of uh, 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 ideas, basic theological truths. And then we begin to encounter within our own sources, the first, the first lists of, uh, of um, uh, 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 principles of Judaism. And they're not with the Rambam, they, they predate the Rambam. Uh, interestingly, they happen to both be from Sephardic sources. Uh, Rav Sadia Gaon, uh, uh, in the 10th century, he has a list of principles of, 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 of the Torah. You've probably never heard of them. Most people have probably never heard of them because he doesn't make a big deal about them. He kind of lists them kind of in an offhanded way in a, a, a parish of, on, of his on a part of Tehillim. Uh, and he just says, oh, by the way, this, this Pasuk has 10 words and each of the 10 words can be seen as reflecting one of the principles of our, of our faith. Uh, and then followed by uh, Rabbeinu Hananel of Kiruan, uh, who at the end of uh, Shmot Yud Dalid gives what he says are the four principles of, of the Torah. Um, uh, so this all really starts in a Sephardic milieu. What's interesting about both of them, uh, both Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu Hananel and Rafsad, and Rafsad, Rafsad Yagaon, is that when they get to issues relating to Tarmina Shemaim or anything that's even close to that, the, their formulation is identical. And it says as follows It says, We must believe, the Jew must believe, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu reveals his will through the Nevi'im and that we are bound to follow what they tell us. I don't think anybody here would have a, a hard time uh, uh, adopting that. It's pretty straightforward. But what is interesting, considering what the Rambam did with this and you know, what, the, what the discourse is like in our own time, it's pretty surprising to see that neither of Sadia Gaon nor Rabbeinu Hananel mention anything about the Torah per se, the Hamisha Chumshei Torah, nor about Moshe Rabbeinu and his agency. And it was dictated, it's just not there. For them, it's Kaddish Baruch who reveals his will through the Nevi'im and we follow. Um, the Rambam, who is the first to really He's obviously not the first to say that the Torah is from Shemayim or that the Torah is given in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Rav Sadiq Gaon also believed that every word of the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. But when he lists his Ikare Emunah, then there it's not so much, he doesn't mention the, the centrality of 
Moshe's role in it. It's just, he's one of the Nevi'im and we follow what the Nevi'im say. Um, the Rambam's list is, and scholars attribute several different influences to what, what, what the Rambam was doing here. What's important for our purpose, his understanding of Tarmina Shamayim, is to understand the Islamic influence on this. Uh, and what I'm going to say now, I came across, I, I thought of this idea, and then I was pleased to discover that uh, uh, Rabbi Professor Chaim Soloveitchik says the same thing. There is an Islamic figure who has an enormous, enormous impact on Jewish history uh, and on Jewish philosophy. And that Muslim thinker is a fellow named Ibn Hazm, who lived a century before the Rambam uh, uh, um, uh, uh, in, in Cordoba. And uh, Ibn Hazm said the following. Ibn Hazm knew, like all Muslims do, did, that uh, see, the Muslims had a, a kind of, a, uh, I would say, uh, uh, not a love-hate, they didn't quite know what to do with the Torah. On the one hand, they knew that the Torah was very ancient and everyone had said it was the real thing. Jews thought it was the real thing. Christians thought it was the real thing. So there must be something there. And so uh, Muslims couldn't just diss it. And so they began to have in the early, the early centuries of Islam, a theory that, well, yes, the Torah is true and it's divine. And if you read it the right way, you will find lots of hints and allusions, not just to Jesus as the Christians said, but to Muhammad, as we say. Um, and that, and so, but why then should we not just follow the Torah? Well, the Torah was kind of falsified. Uh, and that's why a lot of these uh, 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 hints to Muhammad have been lost. Even Hazm came along and said, listen, let's face it, folks, there's nothing in the Torah that relates to Muhammad. And so therefore, our only recourse as good Muslims is to diss the Torah entirely. Ah, the tradition tells us that the Torah was holy. Our Muslim tradition tells us the Torah was holy. Right, it was holy. And then the Jews came along and falsified things. It's the Muslim, the Islamic doctrine of tahrif, falsification. And uh, Ibn Hazm goes on to try to show that there are many, many places in the Torah that clearly things were added later on by different people. It's not all from Moses and therefore not all from God. Uh, but if you do want a text that's written by one trustworthy prophet, well, that we have here in our Quran. This was the, the major doctrine of the day. And so the Rambam has to fight back against this. And so therefore he can do no less than not only affirm that the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, every word, but that this is one of our Ikare emuna. Uh, and so what we have is that for centuries, after uh, the time of Ibn Hazm, who lived, I guess, in the uh, 11th century uh, of the Common Era, we see throughout the Sephardic world, oh my goodness, there are just postgame after postgame who are constantly fighting back against this, this, uh, this Muslim charge that the Torah is falsified, the Torah is written by many hands other than Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, the Radbaz who lived in Sfat, uh, I think around uh, 1500 or so, uh, he writes that he ran from Bet, Bet, Bet Knesset to Bet Knesset, pulling out all of the Sifrei Torah, making sure that all of them had the exact same Nusach, so that nobody could come along and say, ah, you see, the Jews' Sifrei Torah in different places look different. And so this is, and the Rashba wrote a long, a long uh, missive against, against uh, Ibn Hazm. So this is what the Raman was up against. And this is why, this is why in the Middle Ages, when, so I think Rabbi, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make a little initial presentation and then you can kind of take this wherever you want, ask questions, okay. 
So this is why you will find a very interesting trend in the Middle Ages. As some of you may know, there are some medieval uh, uh, authorities, people who were certainly of standing then and maybe even be of standing today, uh, who claimed that there were bits and pieces of the Torah that might post-date the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, beyond just the eight verses that, the, that there's a one opinion in the Gemara and Baba Batra that, 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 that says that they were written by Yoshua, some of these medieval authorities uh, are ready to add other, other passages. Most famously, it would appear that even Ezra felt this way, but mostly what you find is that these are, these are uh, authorities that live in Ashkenaz, um, in the circle of Rabbeinu Yehuda HaChassid, uh, the most prominent. And then in manuscript form, we have some of his followers, some of his descendants, who also say these sorts of things about, about different passages. You will never find a Sephardic opinion in the Middle Ages who says that any part of the Torah is, is written by anyone other than Moshe Rabbeinu, with the exception of the Ibn Ezra. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. And I think that putting aside the Ibn Ezra, it's not an accident. You find that in Ashkenaz, there's openness to the possibility that there are other parts, particular verses, maybe even sometimes more than a few verses uh, that are written by agents other than Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, and you will not find this in, in Sephardic uh, commentaries to the Chumash. This is because it all depends on whether a Parshan was living under the cross or under the crescent. He was living in a Christian land or in a Muslim land. See, if you're living, if you're like Shkenaz, you're living in a, 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 a Christian land, then to say that, well, maybe this Pasuk, that Pasuk is written after the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, in no way imputes the sanctity of the Torah. Because in the Christian world, everybody you ever meet, you can run, you can walk for hundreds of miles in any direction, and every person you meet, Jew or Christian, will affirm that the Torah is holy. And the whole Torah is holy. So the question, is it from this prophet, from this prophet, a little earlier, a little later, is not really a question of much consequence. But if you're living in the, under, under the crescent, if you're living in the Muslim world, then when someone says, oh, you know, there's a pasuk that might not be from Moshe Rabbeinu, it might be from someone else, the Muslims say, of course, that's what we've been saying for the longest time. Your, your book is not from your prophet. Our book is from our prophet. Your book is falsified all over the place. And so you have this big divide between the Sephardic world and the Ashkenazic world. And then in the middle, we have this fascinating figure of Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra is ready, he's Sephardic, obviously. He is ready, it would seem, to affirm that there are several passages, maybe even one might say the narrative frame of, of Sefer Dvarim, one can read him that way, uh, as having been written after the time of Shurabenu. But what's so fascinating about the Ibn Ezra is that he only alludes to this, often in a kind of coded way. It's not very clear always what he's doing. And the reason that he's writing that way is because he is a Muslim. He is, he is in the Muslim world. He is a Sephardic writer. And so none of those Ashkenazic figures that I wrote say, oh, well, I'm going to write now in coded language and allude in a kind of elliptic way that maybe there's something else going on here. Eh, just say it. Okay, I think this might have been written a little bit later than time Moshe Rabbeinu. Sky didn't fall because everyone knows the book is holy where we live here in Ashkenaz. Okay? Now, what's so fascinating about this moving ahead is that the, the positions of Ashkenazim and Sfaradim flip. They totally flip around 200 years ago. 
And this is what happens. This is what happens. I'm skipping a lot of time here. Maybe Rabbi Dweck will bring me back to some of the stuff that's in the middle. What you find by, uh, I would say, the beginning of the, of the 19th century is the following, that uh, uh, in, in Europe, we have the beginning of emancipation. And lots of Ashkenazi Jews obviously begin to take on secular lifestyles. They abandon lives, lives of Torah mitzvot. They begin to have all sorts of new theologies about things, reform movement, all this stuff. And what happens is that uh, uh, the Karei Muna become a, a lightning rod. They become the dividing line between uh, kosher Jews and non-kosher Jews. And especially because many Jews, when they're leaving tradition, effectively you're saying, well, we don't really believe that this book is from, is from, is from Moshe Rabbeinu, and they're actually begin to be scholarly claims as followed by reformed Jews who say, well, no, this book is not written by Moshe Rabbeinu, then this becomes just a total, as it is today, a third rail. This is like, you can't budge from this because if you say anything else, then you are aiding and abetting that foreign enemy the secular world, it's not so much the Christian world, it's the secular world that begins to burgeon and grow. But meanwhile, in the Sephardic world, as you all know, there is no real emancipation. There is no, no real process of secularization that goes on in the original Oriental lands from which Sephardic Jews hail. And you find really that the whole notion of Yugimali Karei was never nearly as big a deal in Sephardic lands as it was in Ashkenazi lands. In fact, uh, the, the prayer, piyut, uh, that we call the Anima Amin, as you may know, there's an Ashkenazic version and there's a Sephardic version. Uh, the Ashkenazic version is very old. It goes back probably to the 12th or 13th century and it got pasted inside the Sidur and, and there, were, there were minhagim and Ashkenaz to say it every day. Sephardim? No, there was no, there was not even a version of Anima Amin in Sephardic Sidurim until the 19th century, around 1820 or so, is the first evidence that we have of Anima Amin, a Sephardic version of it, which is clearly, and it started from Sephardim who lived in Europe, who saw what their Ashkenazi neighbors were doing and said, that looks nice, we'll do something like that in our Siddur as well. And as you may have noticed, it's very interesting, the Anima Amin, the Sephardic version, when it gets to the eighth Ikar, unlike the Ashkenazic version, which is pretty close to what the Rambam wrote in his introduction to Perak states that we believe that every word is, was, was, uh, was given through Moshe Rabbeinu uh, by a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Uh, the Sephardic version just says, Anima, something, I don't remember the exact, the, there's like one phrase at the beginning and then a bunch of bullets. Anima amin munash basically just the way in which the Mishnah had said it without any mention of Moshe Rabbeinu's agency. Now, I don't know whether the Paitan, we don't even know, we don't know who the Paitan was that wrote the Ashkenazic version. It was clearly not the Rambam. And we do not know the name of the Paitan who wrote the Sephardic version that's in your Sidurim. Uh, and so we don't know, you know, was he being midayek here? Did he not care so much? Did he not think that Moshe Rabbeinu's agency was, was so important? Or was he probably, and this is probably more to the truth, he wrote his statements, the anima means, are much shorter. They tend to be about four or five words each, as opposed to the Ashkenazic versions, which are, which are a, little, a little longer. Um, and so 
that's that's in a very brief nutshell how the Ashkenazi and Sephardic positions totally switched. In the early part of the Middle Ages, Sephardim were very, very, very uh, uh, scrupulous about this. Every word must have come from Moshe Rabbeinu because the, the threat from the Muslims pushed them in that direction. And then in the 19th century, it switches. There is no more foreign threat. The Muslim world, this idea of the falsification of the Torah kind of died down a little bit, though it's still, it's still there in, in, in modern Muslim thought. But in the, in, in the Western world, uh, in, in Europe, as, as secularism grew, as Reform Judaism grew, as biblical criticism grew, this issue of, of the insistence that, that Moshe Rabbeinu is the author of every single word became more and more and more important. I'll end with this. I've, I've skipped over about 600 years of this issue in the middle, but I will say that I believe that when you look at how all of Dolei Israel, Sephardic, Ashkenazic, all of them, from, I would say, from the earliest version that we mentioned at the outset, uh, 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 Rav Gaon, until the people writing today in our generation about Ikare Emunah, right up until Rav Moshe Feinstein, and even, and even contemporary figures, you will see an enormous variety about what, are, you know, what, what is the standing of the Yugimul Ikare Muna. Some are radically in favor, some diss the idea entirely. You will see different interpretations of the different Ikare Muna. There is no one accepted text of the Ikare Muna, not for Sfaradim and not for Ashkenazim. That itself tells us an awful lot. Uh, but what you will find for all this divergence, I will make the following claim, that in fact, across all of these ages and all of these issues, there is in fact no machloket at all. All figures that ever weighed in about the issue that we call ikare emuna were always, always guided by one single principle. And that was, when I, posek, hogedeot, authority, in every generation, when I am called upon to address the issues of, of uh, Ikare Muna, I will always do so with my eye on the ball. The ball is, who is my audience? Where am I living? What's going on around me? Are there Muslims with Ibn Hazm? Are there, are there Bible critics and reform Judaism or a zillion other considerations going on, looking at my audience when I am speaking, what is what should I say that will lead my audience to Yirat Shamaim and Kiyum Torah Mitzvot? So for example, uh, we have in the Middle Ages, and with this I'll, I'll end just to show how, how the variety that we can have on this issue, we have uh, the Maharik and, and, and a few other significant figures who say, ah, uh, why do we have to have we would be much better off if we didn't have at all because what's going on in our time right referring to their their time what we're seeing is that peasants look at their christian friends and their christian friends say oh if you just believe x y and z you're saved and so our simple folk are saying oh well if we just believe in a kaddish baruch Hu, then we're saved and you have these major Ashkenazi medieval poskim who are saying, I just wish these people would put on tefillin and then they would be saved. So let's get rid of Ikare Emunah. 
they're clearly addressing the time that they're in and they're figuring out what is the position that they need to articulate to bring people to Yerat Shemayim and Kiyoma Mitzvot. Okay, I've said enough. Uh, so now we'll make this, I think it's all better for us on Zoom when we have a dialogue. So Rabbi Dweck, if you'd like to push back or probe or, or share your own thoughts, uh, I, I turn it over now to you. Thank you, Rabbi Berman. And I, I appreciate uh, what you ended with, which essentially is what you began with, but after it was, it was you know, cloud prat cloud. And so uh, I think it's very important to recognize the point that you're making that essentially is the underlying element of your presentation, both in the book, in this section, and here tonight, that the presentation of the Ikareo Muna responsive to circumstances. Yeah? The presentation of the Ikareo Muna are responsive. And so that depending on what it is that uh, is being, if I can ask everybody to please mute, that depending on what it is that is being highlighted around my environment or in my circumstances is what it, I'm going to focus on and how it is that I'm going to speak. Um, and that's essential for us to be able to recognize. There's a point, there's a great point that you make in the book in which you recognize that among those who, re, who relate to the Rambam, Zikarei Munah, there is the Shalah Kadosh and the Ramchal who say, look, when we say the Rambam's uh, Ikarim are the Rambam's Ikarim, it's like saying that it's Newton's laws of, laws of gravity and Einstein's laws of relativity. They've always been there. It's just that these individuals happen to recognize them, formulate them, make them famous, and so their names are attached to them. And I, I, certainly, I certainly gravitate to that. And I'll, and I'll explain why I, I gravitate to it. You know, there's there's this famous uh, you know adage or, or or analogy story that's given, which says you know two fish, young fish, are swimming in the sea, and an old fish swimming by them, and as he passes them, he says, "Hey boys, how's the water?" And the two young fish look at each other and say, "What's water?" And the point of that <laughs> is that I'm just you know what, Jack, are you the host? Who's the host? Please mute everybody. Uh, so the point of that is that the fish in the water that live in the water don't know what water is because it's just where they live. It's just the, the environment in which they find themselves, which essentially is how it is that you open. And so there are just certain things that, that are known, that are part of the water, if you will, in terms of how it is that we think and the way that we see the world, the lens through which we, we experience everything. And so we don't really think about what does it mean to be us, as you, were, as you were pointing out with regards to your example of marriage. The only thing that I think, well, there are many things, but one of the things I think are, is important for us to recognize that we will often miss when we do read the responses to the, the, the impetus that are sent to us from, from the environments within which we live that prompt these responses, is that we think that once the responses are formulated, that whatever it is that may be added or missing from them is doctrine, and that it's all there. And if it's missing anything or it has it in a certain way, that that's all I, I need to be concerned with. And so to begin to scrutinize those listings as the be-all and end-all of our of our of our ikare muna certainly is is going to be an issue. So this question that that kind of where we're, we're running around in terms of 
Torah Amin HaShamayim, what does that mean? Nobody disagrees with that, right? Torah Amin HaShamayim is fundamental. Moshe, what about Moshe? Was, is it dictated word to Moshe? Uh, were there other people who included, te- you know, lines in it? What kinds of lines? Were they legal lines? Were they explanatory lines? What are we, what are we talking about? Sometimes if the, if the stimulus isn't probing a specific issue, the issue isn't necessarily highlighted, but is nonetheless there. And so there's one issue that I, I think is important for us to pay attention to, at least in terms of that, of the ikar of the Torah min and the Moshe Rabbeinu bit, where you, you, you rightly pointed out that in certain areas and in certain circumstances, it doesn't matter whether, you know, it's, it's Moshe or another prophet. And as a matter of fact, you know, you bring the Tzafnat Peneach that points this out, right? He says, Mali, what does it make a difference as to whether the Nebuah is Moshe's Nebuah or some other Navi's Nebuah? At the end of the day, it's Nebuah, and it's coming from the Shamaim, and that's the Yikar, it's Torah Mino Shamaim. But, the, but the, I think that it's important to recognize that that's a major question. And the fact that the, the, the Rambam does bring that into the Yikar Emunah, even if it is responsive to, to, the, uh, you know, to the Tahrif in his time, or that was brought into his time, does not mean that that's not a major element. And that it is absolutely important that it's the Nebuah of Moshe Rabbeinu and not some other Navi's Nebuah. And there, it's important to have that conversation as to why it's important that it's Moshe Rabbeinu's Nebuah, not another. It's something that the Rambam definitely spends time on. And it's something that we recognize as being a significant uh, difference in terms of not just the Kedushah of the Torah. I mean, obviously, holiness is fine. But what makes Torah the five books of the Torah, the Malachi's mention of Zichru Torah Moshe Abdi, different than all the other books of the Tanakh, even though they may be holy. Moshe Rabbeinu's Nebuah is, is very important in the eternity of the Torah, in, the, in the, the, the value and relevance of the Torah for all people and all generations. The Rambam famously Paskins you know, at the end of Hilchot Megillah, that, you know, the other books that are not the five books are going to be null eventually. We won't really need them uh, at the time of the Mashiach or later in the, you know, the Harita Yamin. But the five books of the Torah, those don't budge. And so there is, and not to mention the fact that the Torah itself spends a tremendous amount of time focusing on this for some reason. The relationship between Moshe's uniqueness of prophecy and the Torah Min Hashemayim bit, the fact that they're adjacent for the Rambam, in his presentation is extremely significant. And it does make a massive amount of difference. Although if it is not something necessarily that is being prompted or prodded by the circumstances, it's not necessarily the element that is highlighted in the Ikarim, but nonetheless, the Rambam's Ikarim are there and put out. And maybe another Ikarim, like Albo's Ikarim, it's uh, inherent, not necessarily ex- explicitly stated. So I think that that's a major uh, aspect for us not to lose sight of. Knowing that these things are formulated in response to stimuli from the outside is important for us in being able to relate to them. How do I relate to them? Do I relate to them as that? Do I recognize that that this is being drawn from a pool of consciousness, the water that we're all swimming in, and therefore it is is to be seen in in those terms, or do I see this as, as, as the ultimate doctrine? I think that's the, the, the first thing that, I'll, that I'll, I'll, I'll present or I'll put out to put out to you. The other is that um, 
I think it's important also to look at the Rambam's uh, Ikarim. Like I say, I, I'd certainly relate to them more as the Rambam's Ikarim in the sense of Newton's laws of physics. And to recognize that, you know, when the Rambam is talking over here, and he's, he's presenting these things, when he's presenting them, he may be responding, but he also has to think, you know, these are not just laws. And it's not the same as, as you know, Maharit was saying, or the Maharil was saying, that, uh, you know, I just want them to put on tefillin and everything will be okay. Of course, you know, we want Jews to keep mitzvot, but it's very different for Jews to keep mitzvot and Jews to have the system with, with that defines the nature of their thought as a people. And that also is often missed, right? Where we look at, all oh, the whole Torah, kol Torah Kedusha, the whole Torah is holy, and all of its components are holy. Let's not differentiate between these elements of Torah and that element of Torah. And sure, when the element that is the very motherboard, the wiring, the, the, the elements that are the very lens through which I see everything, is understood by everybody, fine. And we can talk about the mitzvot and we can talk about the details. But when the lenses that I see through is beginning to be marred or beginning to be fogged or scratched, I need to be able to recognize that I'm paying attention to that lens. And I have to know that I'm paying attention to the lens and not the constituent parts or the properties that I'm looking at through that lens. Uh, And I think that's a very important part of recognizing Ikarim in general. Why Ikarim? Because there are such things that are the, the, the motherboard, the, the system in which we do everything that it is that we do. A mitzvah doesn't stand on its own with its own inherent value outside of the context within which it belongs and it's, it's understood. So those are two points that I would put out to you and I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, um, uh, one thing I, I I do want to point out uh, is uh, I look at the screens on the on uh, on this call, and I suspect that we have people here with us this evening who are situated in Eretz Israel, and some who are in the UK, and some who are in the US, and probably some who are in other places as well, uh, and all of us probably inside are saying, okay, so what what does this mean for? us today and my, and what i want to say here is that there's no one us we are all living well not all you know 72 of us if that's correct if there are 72 but the different uh uh geographic locations that we live in dictate a lot about how we all relate to these issues let me explain what i mean there is just an enormous world of difference about between the way in which these issues play out and their significance and their sensitivity in America and in Israel. Probably also yeah, others. I was going to say, remember that Ibn Ezra spent plenty of time in England also. Yes, yes, right, right. So he it probably definitely influenced his thought. There's no yes, question. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we discuss, you know, who wrote the Torah? in an American context, and we're saying, well, Moshe, but maybe Moshe plus, maybe there are passages here and there. This trips off all sorts of bells and alarms. The reason for that is that centrist orthodoxy, which I suspect if you are living in the US and you're in on this call, you fit in that camp, uh, has always, since its inception for over a century, has always had to contend with competition on the left and competition on the right. 
What do I mean by that? Let's take the left. There has always been reform, conservative, uh, more recently, open orthodox, various institutions, various websites that seem to be competing with a centrist orthodox vision of, of, uh, of the Jewish world and of Jewish history and of Jewish practice and Jewish belief. And there's always been a competition for adherence uh, and, 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 for, and, for, and for beliefs. And therefore, anything that is said in a centrist orthodox milieu or setting that seems to be a little bit different than what's normally said is immediately suspect of aiding and abetting the enemy that's there on the left. Or I guess since this is Zoom, I should be pointing the other direction. But you get what I mean, the left. Uh, and there's also the competition from the right. As you all know, certainly in the US, it isn't that there's a modern Orthodox world and there's a Yeshivish world. There is a human chain that goes all the way from YU down to Lakewood. And there's, you know, everyone's strung out along the way. And what this means is that when, again, when anything is said in a centrist Orthodox setting that is not, you know, exactly what has been the, the toad line for many generations, then from the right immediately come the attacks. Ah, oh, you see, those folks at YU, they're no different than all those people that, are, that have fallen off the left end. And so therefore these issues are very, very fraught because we're constantly, we have no choice but to consider the competition that we have to our left and to our right. But in Israel, it's just not like that at all. In Israel, people living in what is, you know, pretty much the same as a centrist Orthodox uh, 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 ideology, call it Hezder, call it Bar Ilan, whatever you want, it's pretty much the same. But the, the, just the whole setting around us is here in Israel is totally different. There's no competition from the left and there's no competition from the right. On the left, there's no reform, there's no conservative, there's no open orthodox, there's no you know, newfangled left-leaning, left, uh, left bait me none of that. There's just none of that, nothing. Uh, this secular world, but that's not in competition. That's a different world. And to the right, Oh, there certainly is a lot going on to the right, but it's so far to the right, it's like the next planet over in the solar system. And so there's no, there's no competition there for who's gonna be with us, who's gonna be with them, what ideas are being negotiated between the two camps, also worlds apart. And so I find that when I have these, these discussions here in Israel, they're far less fraught. And I think that going back to what I said at the outset of, of uh, uh, that when, uh, when, 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 when rabbinic authorities speak about these issues, they must do so with a keen sense of audience. We don't I understand that. I do understand that. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I'm, I'm asking you about this, this, this other aspect. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about when we look at it only in terms of how it is that we're responding to the audience, we see only what's lit by the audience. And that causes us to lose nuance sometimes in terms of the in terms of the issues themselves. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And so when I when I what I'm saying in terms of as an example using the card that we're talking about, right? In terms of Moshe Rabbeinu's Nebuah, I I think it's important to recognize why that is different. What what about Moshe Rabbeinu's Nebuah is and why is it unique? And why is it so important that it is unique? That question is an important in terms of the Karemuna because it's a it's it's a question that talks back to the lens through which we see the world. It is not just a detail in our Torah. 
It is the entire framework through which we understand the Torah and everything else that we're living. Well, then, then how, what would you say, Rabbi Dweck, about, about the Rasag's formulation? That the most that he said was that we are duty-bound to follow uh, uh, the words of the Nevi'im, you know, Hashem's words of the Nevi'im, and follow them. Uh, you know, this is without taking, you know... Uh, yeah, so I think that it's yeah. very important. The, I think the point that you make is essential, mm-hmm. that there are, there are elements that we simply live in until they are challenged, and then we have to highlight them. Mm-hmm. But the question is, if, that, if I'm beginning now to highlight them, what are the implications of those highlights in terms of what it is that I'm living in, if that makes sense? I don't mean to be too abstract about it. But, but you know, I mean, so I, of course, I, so if the Rasad doesn't need to deal with what the Rambam is dealing with in his time, right. it wasn't right. too far back, right? If he doesn't have to deal with it, so then he's not going to talk about it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu has to be called with Aaron and Miriam into Oil Moed stat right. because right. of what they decided was Ganbanu Diber. You know, he spoke to us too. No, 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 no. See, even God's responding to the problems. <laughs> there wasn't a problem before Mo, Mo, Miriam and Aaron had that dialogue. Right. No, 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 no. We got to deal with this. Come over to El Moed, all three of you, and let me make it very clear. One of the most dramatic episodes in the whole Torah where God comes in and says, listen, you think that I talk to you like I talk to him? I don't talk to you like I talk to him. This is how I talk to him, and this is how I talk to you, and leaves in a huff without even listening to a response. Those things are are part of the way that we understand the whole of Torah, the way that we see the world. So yes, of course, the fact that Rasag doesn't mention it, the fact that the Albo doesn't mention it, doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't something that is part of the way that we, part of the water, yeah, in terms of the analogy. That what makes a marriage work in terms of the analogy that you brought. Just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean that it isn't in there. And right. I think that that sometimes is the, is the, is the, is an issue that, that arises when they are enumerated, right? When they are developed in detail. And that is something that I think it's important for us to be able to keep in mind when we're reading those things, whether there's discrepancy one way or another, if that makes sense. Don't know if it does, but I- All, that... all those, I mean, all those things that you said, I think are true. The question is, is you know, what happens if you say all those things are true as opposed to all those things are- at, at, Whatever any car emuna. What if they're not any? What if they? What if? What if everything? They have, is- so that's the thing. So what I would say is the reason why the Rambam is doing that is putting these through is not just because of a response. Okay. He's putting it out because he's saying, look, without these components, uh-huh. the edifice falls apart. So even Albo, you could say, look, Albo put three out. Yeah. Without these elements, the edifice falls apart. Yes, it does. Right. right. But are those the only elements? So those are the biggest elements. Now, right. are, there are elements that are ikarim, ikarim or yesodot, if you want to say, perhaps better, right? These are the roots. These are the foundations. You take away the foundations and the entire thing falls apart. That is important. We may not be paying attention to the fact that a house is built on a foundation because it's the foundation. Everything's about the foundation until we actually have to start thinking about the foundation when they start drilling next to the house and they're going to threaten the foundation. So right. it is so, important so, but, to know the difference between a foundation and the house. Because without the foundation, the house can't stand. So what the Rambam is saying is, if one does not recognize that Moshe Rabbeinu's nevuah is fundamentally different than the other nevuot, and therefore affects Torah min and that it is not okay that that Torah comes through another navi, we are missing something. 
And an entire edifice can fall if we miss it. That's why I think it's important. Right. So let me just say two things. Um, um, I have a whole chapter in the book where I, I try to show that the Rambam's definition of Torah min uh, in the Mishneh Torah. Yes, I read that. Word, right. Uh, is, 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 is not exactly the same as what yes, he writes in the introduction to Perchelech. And it's interesting why he deviates from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I wonder whether it's because even the Rambam, and, and I suspect even you must, you know, you have to admit that there's an opinion in the Gemara and Baba Batra that the last eight Supreme, right, of the Torah uh, were, were written by Yehoshua. The Gemara even doesn't seem to insist that it was by Nivuah, but let's assume that, that maybe that's what the Gemara meant. So if those apes who came, in other words, what, what, what does that do for, for the theory that, that, that you're trying to... There's only one reason, though. We can recognize that, absolutely. And those are famous psukim. Yeah. They're famous psukim. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's Rabbi Shimon, you know, who says that, well, look, I'm, I don't know, I'm a little bit nervous to say that Moshe Rabbeinu did, <laughs> didn't write those in some way or not. Those are Pesukim that, that the Gemara raises saying Moshe could not have written these. So we're, we're dealt with a, a, a logistical problem. He uh-huh. could not have written these. These right. are not, not a question of, right. well, maybe this is something that he would have written. He didn't write the word Az, you know, whether he wrote it or he didn't write it. The, these are logistical problems in which Moshe could not have written these. There's, a, there's I mean, just, you know, we have to recognize, which is very important to recognize that Chazal point that out, you know, I mean, why don't you yeah. pretend that something happened, which, right. which logistically, yeah. Right, right, so, but the the other opinion there in, in, in that Gemara... Is that Yoshua wrote them? No, no, the other opinion insists, oh, no, Yoshua. it must have been Moshe, you know, it's saying... I, wrote I think, it the Dema, yeah. But, 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 but what it's saying is, it must be that Moshe wrote even yes. those because otherwise it's not Torah. In other words, it says, what, uh, yes, otherwise you wouldn't say, la kola Torah azot. Right, the pasuk says, "Take the Torah." You're not going to tell Moshe to take a Torah that's not intact. That's the point of the Gemara. Oh, I thought that's the, the point of that, yeah, that that other opinion. I don't have the Gemara in front of me now. That's the pasuk on is, is is that there's the, what's at stake is what can we call Torah? You know, yes, the reason that is because there is a pasuk in where Hakadosh Baruch Hu says to uh-huh. Moshe, "Take uh-huh. this Torah." Right. And right. so I'll point out, how could God say to Moshe, "Take uh-huh. this Torah"? What if it's a Torah that's not intact? Okay. It has to be an intact Torah. Right. So it must be that he wrote it, Bedema. Right. So the the right. I, I think that there's you know there's a recognition of if I'm looking at the entire Torah essentially as being Nivuat Moshe, if I'm seeing Malachi say Zuchru Torah Moshe Avdi, if Ma, the Rambam is poskening that the rest of the books of the Bible, you know the rest of the the the, the and so on are not anywhere near it, and they're going to be null when it comes time for 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 you know their purpose is no longer served and all that we'll have left are these five books. There is a fundamental difference between them. And that the Moshe, the Nebuah of Moshe, the fact that you have Torah end saying, Lo Israel ke Moshe. let's not, let's remember that again. You remember what I said to Moshe, to Miriam and Aaron? Let's remember that here again, as we close the book and nobody like him. And he, the Torah is given through him right. specifically because of its nature. Right. So I'm only the only thing that I'm 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 raising, or I think that is important for us to pay attention to, is that these ikarim are ikarim because they form the pillars and foundations of everything else, and when the foundations go, everything goes. 
So it's like when Moshe, when the Rambam talks about God, right? Well, that's the major pillar. It is the most major ikar than everything else. And so we can talk about the wider pillars and the supporting pillars, but when a pillar goes, the whole thing is in, is in jeopardy. And, and that is why it, it would seem to me that when those things are poked at in the environment, those things need to be responded to in kind. So yeah, you have somebody like the Maril who's saying, oh my gosh, you know, we've been dealing with the foundation so long we've abandoned the house. Yeah, but, but important nonetheless to recognize why they're foundations mm-hmm. and how we're supposed to relate to them. And we do relate to them differently. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think we're kind of at the end of our hour here. We are. Yes, we, we're almost, uh, time, time is almost up. I was just wondering, there are a couple of questions, but we can wrap up as well. I think we committed to a hard stop at, at, at half, half nine UK time, though, for uh-huh. the, the wrap-up. Okay. Um, but it's up to the two of you. Well, I'm okay. I know that it's late in there. In there. I don't question. want the Rob to, to have to, to uh, be too extended, but I'm happy if to. Okay, so a question or two. Let's there's see. two. There's two questions. One for each of you, uh, which I'm going to pose based on questions that were asked in the chat. Um, the first one uh, is, is to Rabbi Dr. Berman, um, which is that: Is there a uh, naf kamina? Is there a practical difference? If one adopts the view or is open to the view that certain sukkim uh, do not come from Moshe, does that mean that there's some practical ramification? For instance, those sukkim could not have the same level of drush or something like that applied to them. Um, and then the the question over to Rabbi Dweck. Well, is, so that's so. Let I, I did let Rabbi Berman answer that. Yeah, uh, I I don't know that you know that 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 would be a a, a lucky question. I, I I don't know. Um, I'm not aware of 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 a of, of a position that 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 may, you know. There's there's something about Sefer Dvarim. Uh, the Gemara makes. I, I don't recall exactly what it is. Maybe Rabbi Zwak remembers a statement about that that Sefer Dvarim is Moshe Mipiatz. You know Mipiatz Mo Amran, and so therefore there's. Certain things about Sefer Dvarim that we darshan, don't darshan. That's different. Smuchim. Smuchim. Okay. Yeah. So you know, maybe that, but I can't think of anything really uh, beyond that. It okay. certainly yeah. would have no impact at, at all on the kedushah of the Torah, on its its uh, uh, eminence from Shamayim, right? Uh, on the binding nature of halacha, etc. Okay. Thank you. Um... The, the question to, uh, to Rabbi Dweck is that uh, in, the, in the Ikarim, so part of the Ikar is that all the, um, despite the openness you, you kind of spoke about, that the Gemara and the Chazal engaged in the fact that certain Pesukim might not have been able to have been written by Moshe, um, it, nonetheless it is an Ikar of the Rambam that every word came from, came from Moshe. And I just wondered how you... Uh, how, how you uh, dealt with that or wanted to address whether you wanted you know, to... the five books. Every word of the five books, including the last psukim of Tvarim and, and everything like that. So the Rambam, the Rambam deals with that halachically. Right? He deals with that halachically. And he says that, he says that there's a difference in terms of those, uh, the words, the last words, in terms of, of how it is that we, we deal with those halachically. He mentions that, I think, in... in, uh, in Hilchot, in, in the um, but otherwise, 
the Rambam held that yes, I mean every single word that was how we, I mean how he held, and he and he defines a kofer batorah, a person that doesn't doesn't accept that or believe that that every word was written by Moshe. So yes, the last eight words are logistical issues which Chazal deal with, but otherwise. And it doesn't necessarily affect the nature of the Torah itself in terms of being Nivuat Moshe. Yeah. But nonetheless, Chazal have to deal with it. So um, as far as the Rambam is concerned, it's otherwise we have to think of it as, as though everything was written by Moshe. And he makes it, I mean, he speaks about it in so many different ways in different places. He talks about the fact that Achot Lotan Timna is just as important as Achot Yom HaShabbat Kadisho and so on. That, that all of it ultimately has its is the, the Nevoah of Moshe Rabbeinu, and that all of it was spoken by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Moshe, essentially verbatim. And puts it out in many ways, many times, in many different ways, he puts it out that way. I just, I, I just suppose that on Rabbi Berman's line of, mm-hmm. of inquiry, that why should that be, especially with the last few Pesukim, and where there is, where it is contested, or there mm-hmm. are opposing views in Chazal, why should that be an ikar of the Torah? Why should that be a yesod that even, even right down to the last detail, even areas where there is contest and there are other opinions, why does it need to be a yesod that that comes from the that that comes from Moshe? Because the fact that Moshe Rabbein was nevoah is unique and different in that, as Chazal say, he, he saw things and that his nevuah was essentially not like the other nevi'im, which is ubiyad nevi'im adame, which means that every navi had his way of seeing things, had his way or her way, for that matter, of interpreting things. Chazal also say you should be very careful which navi you go to, because based on who the navi is, is going to be how the nevuah is going to be given over to you, interpreted. Not so with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu's nevuah is not colored by his personality or by his personal uh, view of things. It's not It is beyond paradigm. It's beyond all of, it's beyond time. It's beyond individual perception and feelings. And that is why Moshe's Nivu'ah is an Ikar. Because if I don't see that, then there is no difference between the five books of the Torah and Sefer Yishaya and Shmuel and any of the other books that the Nevi'im wrote. But there is a difference, a fundamental difference. Those books don't come close to the Torah. Forget about, even Kedushah, Chazal don't see the same Kedushah. They're both Kadosh, but they're not of the same level of Kedushah. I mean, that's halachic as well. We recognize that the five books of the Torah, first of all, you're not even allowed to write the other books with it and have it hold its Kedushah Sefer Torah. Second of all, the way that we treat the Sefer Torah itself is fundamentally different than the way we treat any other book of the Navi that's written in the exact same way on cloth with the Dio and so on and so forth. We make a very, very distinct difference between the Kiddushah of the books of the Navi and the books of the five books of the Torah. And the reason for that is because it is not the same. And if we don't recognize the uniqueness of the medium through which it came from Shamaim to the Aretz, which essentially is the Nevoav Moshe Rabbeinu, then there is no difference between those books and any other book that a, that a prophet writes. And that breaks down in terms of what place Torah holds, the five books hold in the edifice that is Klal Israel and our, and our way of seeing the world. Does that make, does that, is that clear? 
I'll leave that to Rabbi Berman to decide. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. So, in uh, on that note, I'm saying in terms of the question that was asked. I, I mean, let's say yes for now. The <laughs> point is that why would the last psukim need to be? We understand the nevuah of Moshe Rabbeinu as being essential and important, but why does that come down to every single word and every single letter of the Torah? Why? Because it's what the Torah is made of. It's what the Torah. Once I start opening it up to saying, well, maybe this one and maybe this line and maybe that line, then I start to open up the actual Torah to a whole bunch to, to a collage. It becomes a collage instead of a full piece. The last psukim of the Torah or last words of the Torah, like I said, again, this is my understanding of Chazal, is a logistical problem, not an ideological problem in the sense that this is, this is a question of ideology that's, be, that's shifting or changing. And so that has to be addressed and Chazal address it in two ways. There are two opinions that they address it in, but not necessarily something that is going to change the integrity. And in by integrity, I mean like a fabric's integrity, of the whole element of Torah and the way that it's understood or has been accepted by Klaus. So. Okay, thank you both very, very much for your time, especially Rabbi Berman for joining us all the way from Beit Shemesh. Uh, just a reminder to everyone that uh, this book, Anima Amin, from Rabbi Berman is, is available from all good uh, booksellers and there is going to be much more from this uh, Chabura coming soon. So watch this space. And have a great and night. I again want to thank I want to thank Rabbi Berman so much for your time, for your contribution to the Chabura, for your amazing words about the Chabura. They are a tremendous chizuk and inspiration to us. And thank you so much for your scholarship, for your Torah that you put out to us, how important it is, especially exactly at this time, how much we need your words. And uh, Amen, Amen, Amen. I, I just want to thank uh, 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 Avi and uh, and Jack and, and Rabbi Rabbi Dweck for hosting me, and to just say that friends, this is not an end. This is a beginning. Uh, I get emails every single day uh, about the book, and uh, anyone that has read it or read parts of it, and uh, you know wants to probe further or get clarification. Uh, I love hearing from people and I have conversations like this on, on Zoom all the time uh, with far less people than we have here tonight. So uh, if you do read the book and uh, uh, you have things that you want to talk about, I, I feel that's uh, part of my calling and I'm, I'll be happy to hear from you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Cool Very good. And Chag Sameach. everybody. Thanks so much. Good night. Okay. Good night.